Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's Library in Ashland, Ohio. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea, focusing in this series, a special series, Portraits of the Presidency. And we're going to begin this series at the beginning, um, conversation about George Washington. And our, our special guest today is Professor Mark Landy. Mark is an old friend of the Ashbrook Center. Mark, when did Maybe you first... Maybe the oldest. <laughs> Maybe the oldest friend. I've been here from the beginning, from the beginning of teacher programs. Wow. Before so MAG. That would go back to the late, early 2000s. Early 2000s. Wow. Yeah, I think it was three years maybe before we had the graduate degree to offer. Yeah. That's when things were easy. <laughs> Fantastic. Slow, slower and easier, but not as uh, important right. as the MAG program, which is so vitally important. Yeah, well, thanks for taking all your time and energy over these years to help teach the teachers. It's my delight. I look forward to it. I look forward to it. In the, in the depths of the New England winter, I look forward to it, <laughs> and I'm, I'm always rewarded. The teachers are great. Wonderful. Well, thanks for being here. Mark is professor of political science at Boston College, where you've been for a number of years. Do we have to pursue no, let's, that? <laughs> <laughs> a number of years, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> also, um, besides teaching for, for Ashbrook, of course, in the master's program, and besides teaching at Boston College. Mark is the author of a number of books, um, a couple of noteworthy ones, and particularly um, Presidential Greatness, a really important book on the fundamental question, what makes a great president and who, who are those? And then another uh, noteworthy, important book, American Government, uh, that's Mark's textbook. Right. So thank you also for your service to the, to the discipline of political science and just to helping the public understand these important questions. Well, you're very kind, I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, let, all right, let's talk about, this is the first episode of this Portraits of the Presidency, George Washington, the first president. Um, we think of George Washington, I think of George Washington, as not just a president, bigger than that. I think of him as a statesman. Yeah. Um, help us understand, though, George Washington, the man, the person. Well, yeah. let's, let's take it, start from the beginning, if you don't mind, just a little bit of highlight. I want to get to understand who George Washington right. is. Right, and, and that question is, is made difficult by George Washington, huh. because he was very much opposed to self-revelation. Right. Hmm. You think about more recent presidents, they'll love to tell you oh, about yeah. everything that ever happened to them, and you know, what was their pet dog, and, and you know... Uh, what pranks they pulled in, in high school? No, not George Washington. He wore what John Keegan calls the mask of command. Hmm. It was his view that to command an army, to command a nation, uh, you had to do what the Greek actors did, which was to wear a mask. Right. You had to, the Greek actors wore it for more limited reason, that that was the only way the public could see them way back in the cheap seats. And Washington's understanding is more political, that um, to, you have to be more than a person. You have to, you have to symbolize great things. Hmm. And, and this was his, 
This was his great gift, I think. We'll talk more about his gifts, but this was certainly maybe his most uh, important strategic uh, sort of yeah. uh, presentation of self. I don't think any president has really tried to present himself the way Washington did. He's, he's self-consciously presenting himself, yes. understanding this role of office. Yes. But what about before he becomes president? Okay. Even before he's oh, let's go way general. back. Let's go back to the beginning. What do we know about George Washington's youth and and yeah, the formative really, influences? Really important things. I mean, most important is he's a creature of Virginia, hmm. and for a New Englander like me, Virginia is a bit <laughs> opaque. Uh huh. But the the key there is that Virginia is a certain kind of society. It's it's the nearest we come. It's not aristocratic in the in the serious meaning of the term, right. but it, it 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 it's wannabe aristocratic, right? It's it, the the key institutions are on the one hand the plantations, and of course Washington, particularly after he married money, mm -hmm. he loved Martha, but he he married money. Uh, emerged in that great planter class. He wasn't at the absolute top of it, but he but he went from the middle of it to high in it. Okay. And so he he brings this quality of uh of uh, arist aristocratic pretension at least, mm -hmm. not true mm -hmm. uh, aristocracy, but managing a plantation is a very big job and and of course you have all these slaves who are who 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 you command and underlings of various sorts and and uh, troubles uh, kind of troubles that aristocrats get in they they seem to never have they seem to be rich and yet never have any money right and that's important for Washington because he had always his his correspondence is full of letters to his factors in. Uh, London, who he thought were cheating him, uh -huh. and they probably were. Uh -huh. um, so this is this is a strange background for the first Republican chief executive. Yeah. You, you know, in some ways, there, you have to explain away how did he become a Republican, small R Republican, uh, when he's such an aristocrat. Yeah, and on that score, I'd like to stress. His participation in the House of Burgesses. The House of Burgesses, uh, the equivalent of, say, a state legislature in a way, I mean, it was, uh, there were many, there were a number of members. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a legislative body, passed uh, statutes, but of course, it's not like a legislature. First of all, uh, there's no great democratic aspect. Right. This is collective governance with not much condescension toward the people. Uh -huh. You know, you you bought them. You know, you bought them booze on election day. <laughs> and of course, they they were In very a time honored tradition. A time honored tradition that 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 the bosses of urban machines did not invent, <laughs> and, and Americans did not invent. The English had been doing that uh, as long as there was a serious parliament. So he the, 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 as a student and just uh, just taught me in class um the house of burgesses really got into being in response to the oppressive royal governor of virginia mm. 
these royal governors were all over the place. Some were oppressive, some were content to just uh, drink themselves silly. I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. you couldn't generalize. But in Virginia, the Burgesses, it was, it was this collect collectivity coming into being to protect their rights, right? Meaning especially property rights. Uh -huh. Later on, even even right, uh, free speech and assembly late in the late in the game, but but in 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 the off in the institution that nourished him, he had two nourishing institutions, the military and the House of Burgesses, and mm. I think the Republican aspect of Washington really emerges from being part of of, of collective rule. They didn't rule. I mean, they had to fight with yeah. the governor, but they. But it was it, it was a republic. To me, that's interesting because we don't think of George Washington as member of a legislature. I know. We think of him as an executive. Yeah. We think of him as always an executive. Yeah. Well, no, of course, and he was from a very early age also an executive. I mean, he had great re executive responsibilities uh, in the uh, in the fight against the French. Mm -hmm. Uh, of course, he start, He caused the fight against the French with his uh, unfortunate uh, efforts to uh, engage a French contingent of soldiers. They, this was all about Fort Duquesne, which the French held, was in contemporary Pittsburgh, what's now Pittsburgh. And Washington was leading a contingent to inform the French that um, they had to vacate. Fort Duquesne. This is, of course, during the French and Indian War. French and Indian War, late 17, 1750s. Mm -hmm. um, well, of course, they had no intention of doing that. Why should they? They had a superior force. But in, in the course of that, he ran across a, a French uh, squadron. I don't know what they were doing there. And in the course of this, should, what should have been a peaceful exchange of views, um, a lot of French, French soldiers were killed. Hmm. And Washington always claimed it was his Indian supporters. He had Indian allies on this venture, and it was all their fault. They scalped these poor, poor French guys. One doesn't know how implicated Washington was, uh -huh. but it happened. He started a world war. Wow. It's another aspect of Washington that perhaps doesn't get enough attention. But once after that debacle, he became a very important leader of men. Uh, and that was an executive function. He led troops. Yeah. Uh, he was never the, the top dog, but he, but he was really important. And uh, so even there, he's developing his executive abilities. And his, then later, not much later, a little bit later, he develop, begins to develop this outlook. I wouldn't call him a great legislator, but he was, I think, a great constituent part of this remarkable legislative assembly, the House of Burgesses. If we start, if we think about the timeline of this then, the French and Indian War is over sometime around 1763, at least in, in Good for North you. America, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then, but then we, we, again, we think of Washington again in 1775, where yeah. he takes command of the, of the Continental Army, goes up to, to Boston up to deal with the siege of Boston. What's happening in Washington's life that's forming him between 1763 well, I think and 1775? That, I think this House of Burgess's experience the is, is, is very crucial. He, he has to devote a lot of his time and energy to, to 
again, an executive function managing this feudal manor that he's got. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's very feudal. Instead of serfs, there are slaves, right? And he's, like, he's the baron. So that's a kind of executive experience that he that he's acquiring, and he's complete. He's completely devoted to this. He ne even in the midst of battle during the war, um, he's writing instructions to his overseers in, uh, on the plantation: do this, do that, buy this slave, sell that slave. I mean, it's not happy stuff, uh -huh. you know. Uh, and he's writing letters to his the the the. the despicable uh, agents in London who are cheating, who he thinks are cheating him. Uh, he never loses sight of Mount Vernon, even though he doesn't, he doesn't get there. I think, it, I don't know, if, remember if it's seven years that he's not there. All through the wow. war, he's not there. Wow. Until, uh, until Yorktown. Uh, on the way to Yorktown, he stops off. I see. So he's obviously had this military experience in the colonial militia, helping the British and the French and Indian Wars, you say it's a some something of a debacle for him, but he sort of recovers his place. He has some significance in the House of Burgesses in Virginia. How does Washington become commander of the Continental Army? Okay. Well, first of all, who wants the job? <laughs> I mean, this was not. This is not nobody the, in 1775. Is, is that the, it? You know, this is not a mil a, a, a military country. Well, we have our militias. Um, there, there's no cadre of, of would-be uh, military commanders. There isn't a lot of choice. That's, that, that's one thing. And okay. this, it is, you know, Washington is a genius at this. His, right, his record is so mixed after the French, uh, in the French and Indian War, but he emerges as a hero. He doesn't, so he's well known. He's even known in London. Hmm. He's he's well known, and I, and I should point out one other very formative event that happens. Um, the British were making nothing but colossal mistakes in their relationship to the colonies. I mean, if they had, I mean, they could have come out of that so much better. Mm -hmm. But maybe the most colossal mistake they made is Washington petitioned for a. Uh, a commission, he, a commission in the British Army. Mm -hmm. He was turned down, right? This hero, hero of the yeah. French and Indian War, but he's a, he's a measly colonial. I mean, the contempt, really. In the end, you could almost say the the, the biggest factor leading to the revolution was the contempt that the British had for the colonials, because so many of the colonial-specific gripes were very trivial. But, but what they sensed was that the British were, were going to do worse. And, and so for Washington, who's, who's, first of all, he's one of the very few soldierly figures in colonial America. People didn't aspire to be a soldier. There were no wars to fight. Militia would fight the Indians, and uh, everybody had to be competent as a militiaman. Right. But they certainly didn't aspire that they wanted to be back with their plows or with their yeah. slaves or whatever, whatever was treating, you know, good for them. So in, it's a nation, nation of merchants, of farmers, of lawyers. Yeah, that's it. There's no, there's no military class. Uh -huh. 
uh, you know, there were a few alternatives to Washington. Horatio Gates said it was already on the scene, but he was, so, you know, people could see through Horatio Gates. You know, we don't have time to talk about Horatio Gates, <laughs> one of the real scoundrels uh, of American history. You could almost say, you could, it would be just a some slight exaggeration to say there was only Washington. Everybody else who wanted it had, had no real deep military background. Mm. Others would have loved to be commander-in-chief. Uh, second of all, it had to be a Virginian. Why? Well, because, the, because this had been so much a, an exclusively Massachusetts game up to this point. Mm. And the, the leaders in Massachusetts, especially the Adams cousins, uh, Sam and John, this had to be a national effort, and I think they were, on the whole, very um, cheerful about the fact that the other colonies were were showing more and more interest in getting into this affair. But they knew that since the leadership, in a way, was coming from Massachusetts, there had to be a solid alliance with Virginia. I mean, that's that's the heart of the of the Revolutionary Wars, the Massachusetts. Virginia alliance, hmm. right? New yeah. York, you know, too many Tories, and you know, and, and New York is, I'm a New Yorker, so I can say New York is New York. Yeah. <laughs> Impenetrable. Um, so it, ha it really had to be a Virginian. And of course, Washington in his, right, his uh, mask of command way shows up at the Second Continental Congress wearing his uniform. Oh, I don't want this job. Oh no, I'm not fit to be commander in chief. I'm just a, you know, I'm just a country boy. I, I can't do this, right? Resplendent in his <laughs> in his uniform. It's just, you know, he, he's endlessly amusing Washington, uh, and that's why we don't study him enough because we take him too serious. We're so serious about the monument that yeah. we, that, that that all this incredible leadership qualities that he that, that that ultimately lead to statesman, statesmanship. Yeah. I haven't forgotten your ultimate question yeah. about statesmanship. Well, tell us about Washington, the man and general during the Revolutionary okay. War. Because well, I, if you listen to people, they will often say, um, critics, historians will say, his military record was completely exaggerated, more losses than wins of any significance, and sort of by luck and happenstance and British mistakes, Washington emerges from the Revolutionary yeah, War, thought he, of as a great general. What do you make good, of that assessment? He, he's a good, ba he'd be a good baseball player. He batted about 300, you know? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, he he was not in the most conventional meaning of the term a great commander. He didn't have such a great understanding of military strategy and tactics. Hmm. Uh, this comes out most... Uh, horribly in in the New York debacle, right? Where where he first of all he should never have tried to defend New York. This uh, was in 1776. Yeah, well, it starts in the end of 75 into 76. Okay. Um, uh, you know he'd had such good fortune in 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 Boston because essentially the the British were defeated in Boston before he got there. Mm. And uh, no, he did, and there he did show some great strategic talent by arming Dorchester Heights, 
the stupid British have, had left hillsides un, basically undefended. And Washington g did show some real opportunistic talent there in, in getting our artillery that we had, that, that he had had the good fortune to have taken from Fort Ticonderoga because there was no artillery. And now there was artillery and the British looked up and they saw those cannons and they essentially left. Mm -hmm. So he, deser he deserves some credit for that. They moved down and the co colonials then moved down to New York. You say he made a colossal mistake. Why did Washington want to defend the city of New York? Yeah, well, you know, as a New Yorker, I can tell you. <laughs> New York is compelling. And, <laughs> and um, you know, had they been able to defeat the British fleet in New York, they would have won the war, I think. Uh -huh. uh, but um, Is that why Washington wanted to stand and fight there? He thought this we want one decisive battle to win? I think so. I think he was still of that mindset. Washington becomes a brilliant political general in the course of the war. I don't think he starts out that way. Huh. Because he had no decent plan to, de to defend New York. And the British just knocked the bejesus out of him. Uh -huh. it, was, it was a terrible loss. I mean, he had no idea how to defend Brooklyn. And, uh, and, the, and the British had this enormous fleet and very tactically able generals, and they, they just outgeneraled him, and they had the superior force. I think even if they hadn't been quite as shrewd as they were, the way they, they kind of did a pincer around Washington. Mm -hmm. That was brilliant, but even less brilliant generals, I think, would have would have so first Washington has to go to what is now Washington uh, to Boston, not Brooklyn Heights, by the East River, and he's driven there, uh, and then he really he escapes to Manhattan, a combination for in ways that he does he deserves only certain kind of credit for. First thing that helped him was fog. Hmm. If it hadn't been so foggy that night that they that they um, uh, uh, evacuated Brooklyn, uh, I think he would have been annihilated. And then he had the good luck to have this remarkably gifted unit of sailors from Gloucester, Massachusetts, who knew, really knew how to how to do how to, how to navigate, and, and 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 they could go across the somewhat turbulent East River. Time and time again, and, and by the time the British woke up, understood the fog lifted, and the Americans were gone. Hmm. So this is the beginning of his wisdom, I think. Help, help us understand that. You said he became, he became a better political general. Yeah, his greatness as a general was not fighting battles. As I say, batting about, he didn't lose every battle he fought. He won in Trenton, he won in Princeton. Uh-huh. These are great victories, but he lost in Germantown. Um, he, he lost uh, all the all the fighting around Philadelphia was a, was a debacle. Mm -hmm. He couldn't he couldn't defend what was at least temporarily functioning as the nation's capital. He couldn't defend it. He kept he had ambitious, very conventional warfare. I mean, the, the idea that the Americans army fought guerrilla warfare and you know that's that's mostly nonsense it, hmm. it was it was a very uh, on the whole conventional military 
Right. And Washington wanted to fight pitched battles. And he lost two big, you know, big ones around, or particularly around Philly. That was the end of his defeats because after that, he didn't fight pitched battles. He under he came to understand something more profound than being a great general. He understood what it meant for the colonies to win. He understood what that meant, and what that meant was. Not losing, not 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 uh -huh. losing definitively. Uh huh. Not losing. I often say Washington's greatest gift as a general was retreat. <laughs> now that's not entirely fair. His really, I think, the most amazing thing he did was to keep the army together under the most trying circumstances. Uh huh. I mean, people died of starvation at Valley Forge. Yeah. It's just a, a hideous story, and yet. Enough, a lot of men deserted, but and there was still an army after that horrible winter in Valley Forge and the winter before that. After that, he found more commodious places to winter his soldiers. So his, his great gift was to see if the, if the, what, will keep, what keeps the country fighting is to have an army in place. We have an army. As long as the British don't decimate the army, they're going to get tired of this game. Mm -hmm. What are they? You know, what's in this for them? Right. They're making. They're much more concerned with the Caribbean. There's much more money to be made in the Caribbean, right. and and uh, these colonies. They've got Puritans and all kinds of lunatics living there. Are they going to fight to the last ditch? I mean, that, he realized that they were always going to be superior. Right, because they had the, 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 so much resources. The, the French War did not prevent, I think maybe the initial hope was that having to fight France would sap the British. And in a way it did ultimately. I mean, the British did evacuate Philadelphia after winning that great trophy. Right. They left because they wanted to send so many soldiers to the Caribbean. I'm Chad Kiefer, Director of Philanthropy and Strategic Partnerships here at Ashburn. At its heart, America's story is about the lives of patriots who have given their last full measure of devotion to preserve and protect what it means to be an American. But the tragic truth is that the American story is being rewritten as one of oppression and despair. Back in 1776, the founders took a chance when they created a new government built on principles of liberty. They took a chance on America now I'm challenging you to do the same. Your gift to Ashbrook today reaches students, teachers, and citizens across the country, helping them to understand why America is worthy of their devotion. With so many forces eroding our history and taking away from our principles, isn't it time we give America a chance? Your investment is encouraged now more than ever. Please visit us today at ashbrook.org support. So he learns what it means for the Americans to win, which is, you say, not lose, not lose. which means the Continental Army doesn't get destroyed. If it lives to fight another day, fight it lives to fight another, another day, another day, another That's day. It. You lose Philadelphia, you lose New York, who cares? Yeah. Right? And I he, mean, you don't need these places. You need to just persevere. Perseverance, patience, a kind of political insight yes, that he had. That you've got it. Not a military tactics or strategy. Yeah, where he was uh, 
the nicest thing I could say is uneven. He wasn't <laughs> always wrong, but he wasn't great at it. Uh, so let me ask you this then. Th that, those qualities that kind of develop in him over time while, when he's a general, um, how does that time as a general, how, does it, how do we see those qualities when he becomes president? Because obviously the war ends. In 1783, he famously hands back his commission to Congress, right? Yeah. Which is, of course, a very significant everyone, act. People are in tears, and, you know, it's, it's very beautiful. For those of our listeners who might not understand that, what's the significance of that? In fact, it's so important, isn't it, in the inside of the rotunda, in a painting oh, of oh, the Capitol? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, when have the, the, the greatest military commanders voluntarily retired? Alexander the Great, did he, did he retire after he conquered India? I don't think so. Julius Caesar, quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. So there is this tradition of, of military commanders usurping uh, control, civilian control. It, it's, it's a well-known story. Whether the Duke of Marlborough would have done it or not, Churchill thinks not. Others are not so sure. Um, you know, think of the temptation. You've won the war. Your soldiers love you. Mm-hmm thing I didn't stress enough about Washington is we can talk about his uneven military, you know, career as a general, but the soldiers adored him. They believed in him. They st enough stayed with him through thick and thin. They, and they loved him because he stayed with them? He stayed with, well, two, two uh, by the way, that's, that's not, a, it's a, a bit murky how he developed such loyalty among, among these men. Uh -huh. uh, you know, he, had a, he, he did some remarkable things. First of all, he stayed with them. He didn't go off to Mount Vernon while they, while they suffered uh, uh, starvation in Valley Forge. He was at Valley Forge. Now, he ate better than they did, but they didn't, you know, this was a, a society still with great deferential qualities. Mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't begrudge the general a good meal when we're starving, but he's there. He cares about us. He's mm -hmm. trying mm -hmm. to get the cheap Philadelphians to cough up some resources, some food for them. So there's his, his identification with the men, even though he's so clearly superior to them. Mm -hmm. And this is a complicated piece of human psychology, right? Who does, do soldiers revere the guy who's just palsy with them? Or do they revere the man who shows his greatness by both being superior and empathetic? Both. And Washington could combine those qualities. He could combine that. The soldiers knew he cared about them. Mm -hmm. Even though in his private writings he sometimes said horrible things about them. But he cared about them. Mm -hmm. There's that. Um, I don't think that's the whole story. Um, he wore, well, uh, let me just embellish that story. It's really the, a similar point. But he wore the mask of command, that, that commanding presentation really mattered. Soldiers want that. They're mm -hmm. scared out of their wits. Who can they trust? Oh, I know. And then a, 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 a corollary, he was very brave. You know, if I've minimized his soldierly qualities, let me not minimize that. He put himself in, under fire. His clothing was shot. His horses were shot. 
it's just amazing that he was there's a, a maybe apocryphal story that uh, a, a british uh, sniper had him in his sights and then didn't fire you know who knows I don't, i'm not sure that's true but it's, again washington would have allowed that to become part of his myth mm -hmm. that ability to to, to to create a myth combined with these real things like being so brave and i would say those are the that's what i would stress from his mill and then just managerial capacity he had to he had to run the army he wasn't getting who was helping him i mean he to get resources out of the congress he had to humiliate himself mm -hmm. and uh, and he was the presiding general and there were of course all kinds of conspiracies to undermine him to get him uh, Horatio Gates lived to try to <laughs> replace Washington and he had lots of um, compatriots who were helping him despicable people uh, mm -hmm. uh, so these, so these qualities that he sort of develops over the course of the revolution mm -hmm. and um, displays that win him this kind of fierce, almost undying loyalty from those under his command. Washington then, of course, is unanimously elected president yeah. as the first president under the new constitution. Yeah. In his first term as president, what's the biggest challenge okay. that his administration faces and how do we see some of those same qualities that we saw as general here with okay. Washington as president? Great question. So I would say I can't limit it to one. I think there were two great. Okay. The two great uh, 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 mountains he had to climb were, first of all, he had to create the executive office, right? I mean, in the Federalist Papers, there was all this great defense of the need for a, you know, an energetic executive. Yeah. But there are so many forces at work in the country. The country is still full of people who mistrust, who think of themselves entirely as citizens of the states. Mm -hmm. how, he's, how is he going to impose an energetic executive on the country in a way that they will, abide, will, will go along with? Mm -hmm. And then I think the part that's underestimated is... What do you do about France, France and England? What do you do about these two great world powers who, uh, who hover over you? I mean, we were a very weak country. I think we forget. We don't. You don't forget. But a lot of people forget the fragility of 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 post-revolutionary war America. I mean, it's this narrow stretch of coast from. Uh, you know, from what would now be called Maine, then it was Massachusetts, down to Georgia. The bulk of the population lives along the shores, and then there's inland farmers. But it, it's not it's not yet a big pow a big country uh, in terms of population. It becomes that remarkably quickly, but mm -hmm. not yet. Mm -hmm. um, there's no standing army. The army is dissolved. Uh, there's there's virtually no navy. Mm-hmm. How do you, you know, do we think that the British gave up on America because they, they signed that treaty? Come on, right? They're just waiting for the, for states to develop all kinds of friction and, um, and, uh, 
uh, the place would dis dissolve itself, right? And you could pit one state against the other, and and mm -hmm. station troops in the most in the places that were in rebellion. I mean, there were all kinds of hopes. And then there's France, which is, you know, now a, becoming a revolutionary place with, with all kinds of crazy stuff. From his lights, crazy stuff. Washington never had a second of sympathy for the for the French Revolution, as uh -huh. far as I can tell. He saw that this was this was just chaos. And what would emerge from it? Maybe ambitions to take, you know, to conquer the United States. Who knows what was would go on? So he's got this domestic problem of be of of establishing the executive office, exactly. and he's got this significant foreign policy yes. tense, difficult situation. Right. Okay. How does Washington handle each of those situations? Okay. What, what do you see in him that strikes you as that looks like st statesmanlike action? How does he handle those challenges? On the on the on the first problem, well, the two are intertwined. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me it's a great combination of seeing where he should be aggressive and push the power of the executive and where he should be reticent and show that he's a Republican executive, that he's not a, mon a monarch in drag. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he does both. He does both. He, he gets who, uh, the person who at that time was his great pal, Madison, to, to, to win him the removal power. So he's got the removal. He gets the, He gets his uh, ability really to discipline his official family. He'll have an executive be because the Constitution says the president appoints with the advice and the Senate. And you and the most logical thing would be to say, well, the president appoints, but since the Senate gives advice and con and cons most importantly consent to the appointment, the Senate has to give consent to the to the removal. This is this is looks like the more obvious solution but, uh, but Washington's Washington, view is if that's true the executive will be very weak he can't he can't he can't, can't govern How, and he can't even be a decent uh, popular executive because what are the people holding him accountable for mm -hmm. if he doesn't control his the people his appointments so the removal power this is aggressive and it needs Madison I'm not saying Washington does this on his own he always needs uh, uh, wonderful underlings to help him first madison and then hamilton mm -hmm. but but don't underestimate madison in all this interesting so there's there's the removal power uh there's the whiskey rebellion the, the, this this terrible uh thing that happens in western pennsylvania where the farmers uh who for whom i have great sympathy will not pay the whiskey tax mm. I'd more, I love to talk about the Whiskey Rebellion, but I think we're short of time, so I better, <laughs> I better not do that. Um, we could have a whole episode on that. <laughs> yeah, I could do a whole Whiskey Rebellion thing. But the, but the key is, you know, he's going to mount his horse and muster the militias from various states and go and arrest these, you know, he's going to defeat these people. Mm -hmm. He never actually has to do it because it's so obvious that he will do it. That the, the the farmers essentially give up the ghost, and then he's very generous in terms of his treatment of most of the of the of the rebels. But he he puts down a rebellion. He is commander in chief. Those aren't just words. Mm. So the whiskey mm. rebellion is absolutely central. Um, 
What about the foreign policy crisis between so, Britain and France? Well, that's that's where he does what the thing that I think was most controversial in his first term. He declares peace. He say, he issues a neutrality proclamation. He doesn't ask Congress for the neutrality proclamation. He issues it. Where does it say? It says he's commander in chief. And but the, where does it say he's peacemonger in chief? Right. Doesn't say that. <laughs> in fact, the Constitution says Congress has the power to declare war. Thank you. So if, it's a little bit like what we were saying with the removal power. Does, isn't it obvious? And and even Madison, who we treat as the great overall framer of the Constitution, believes that since the Constitution, the House has the, the, I'm sorry, the Congress has the power to declare war. Of course, it's only the Congress that can declare peace. But Washington sees that this is, this is the great dangerous moment for the survival of the country. And you have these two factions that have formed that are, you know, uh, Tip O'Neill used to love to say all politics is local, but the, the origins of our political parties and, and the deepest source of factionalism was international. You had the French party and the British party. Right? The French party could argue on terms of principle, right? Our fellow Republicans in France and we have a treaty with them. And of course, what the what the the British side was arguing was basically sobriety, right? It's the British who are going to kill us. It's the British who we trade with. It's the, the British who we want to get more credit from. So get off your high horse. But they didn't get off their high horse, right? They were they, they the the, the pro French faction was very powerful. And they're so they're agitating for us to take a side and come out in favor of our treaty with France right. and back France in this war right. against Britain. And the, others, and the others would want us to tilt, not, it's not entirely clear how far, but basically tilt toward the, toward toward the, the British. British. Caught in the middle between these two, what is what Washington says, no, we're going to be neutral. Plague on all your houses. If, if, if we, we're going to be neutral, right? That's what, that's what a weak country should do. Ask Switzerland, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, if you can't really fight, you don't have the resources to fight, you should stay out of it. And that's what he argued. And he took incredible uh, vitriolic opposition to that. And is this that, really the first time that Washington is publicly widely criticized? I mean, because we know that he cared deeply about his reputation and was he always is cultivating that his reputation. He, he would do almost anything to protect his reputation, almost anything. But uh -huh. I think you're right. This is when, this is when... How did he handle the criticism? He never handled criticism well, but he did it in private, so it's okay. I mean, publicly, mask of command, but in his, in his, in his letters and stuff, he's... He's furious, and he never wants to believe that it's Jefferson who's behind any of this. Hmm. He just is very reluctant to believe it, because Jefferson did it and things anonymously, and then Madison uh, writes the um, in the debate that develops between so-called Pacificus and Helvidi Helvidicus, Helvidicus, um, 
Madison doesn't ever reveal that he's the writer of those anti-neutrality proclamation essays. Mm. He, he doesn't own up to it. So uh, I think Washington is a little hard-pressed about who to blame, but... Pub but publicly he keeps his cool. Publicly he always keeps his cool. He always keeps his cool. That's the mask of command. Or if you want to adopt the ma wonderful Machiavellian uh, uh, formulation, he's the, always the lion, even if he is actually also a fox. Because hmm. he's pretty foxy, mm -hmm. this guy. Very he, foxy. He, he obviously weathers the public criticism. He's re-elected to a second term. Yeah, ver uh, you're, you, again, unanimously. Unanimously. The only president ever elected unanimously, much less twice unanimously. Yeah. Um, his second term as president. What's the big crisis or problem that confronts him as president? Very there? stormy again, but now it really does focus on the international situation. And this is from 1793 to 1797. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yes, but you know, you have, um, you 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 have again, you have developing much sort of mushrooming over time, this deep division in the country. And it's not only about France, it's, I, I said foreign policy, but it's about so much more than foreign policy. It's about, uh, some things were settled in the first administration, but remain in people's craw long after that. So we, we decide that we will in fact fund the debt that, that we'll, we'll pay off all these speculators who mm -hmm. had bargained prices bought debt from the good solid yeoman who support who who funded the revolution in 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 part uh, but then those the the bonds aren't being redeemed so ste so speculators buy them at a you know i don't know 10 cents on the dollar and then the hamiltonian faction says we have to honor contract Mm -hmm. You can't you, you can't get all moralistic about this. These people have the bonds. You got to pay them. And of course, Jefferson and Madison are saying, "What? You're rewarding these scal these scabs, these mm -hmm. these, these corrupt uh, specu speculators. speculators." This is when speculation enters the public debate, and you know Washington, on the whole, sides with Hamilton. So it's in the second term that you fully see. The struggle between staying above the fray and on policy grounds being with Matt, with Hamilton. He really isn't neutral the way he is between England and France. On domestic questions, on the bank, uh, on, the, on the debt refunding, he's, he's squarely in Hamilton's camp. But first of all, he has the wit to blame, to let Hamilton be the fall, not fall guy, he survives, but for Hamilton to take the heat, not mm. him, mm. right? This yeah. is, this is wily, this is fox-like, don't, uh, have fall guys. And Hamilton is his great scapegoat for so much of what he is also, he's a full-fledged Federalist. He's not nonpartisan, and yet he manages to stay above the fray. That's the great challenge he faces in his second term, and of course Adams has to inherit all this. Yes, and then partisanship breaks out into the open. Then part of it, right. Even as early as 1796 in that election, there are hints of it, but the Jefferson-Madison side hasn't mobilized sufficiently, but by 1800, they come to power.
So Washington, by the end of his second term, um, has set, as you said, he, one of his great tasks was to shape and give form to the executive office of president. Um, he, he dies and one of, a eulogy of him says, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. Yes. Um, you've studied Washington a lot. <clears throat> Based on his time as president, does he deserve that eulogy? Well, let me see if I can think up with a phrase that sums it up. How about first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his country? He <laughs> deserves it all because he has foibles. We all have foibles, but this brilliant understanding of what the country must have, in first in war and then in peace, what it must have to survive. He's always got his eye, I think, as any great statesman, on the main chance. And if you have to make sacrifices to preserve mm. the main chance, you make those sacrifices. So holding the army together, holding the country together, finding out a way to be a Republican executive and be energetic. Um, the only person whose greatness you can compare him to really is Lincoln. And that's a whole mm. other story. Mm. Wow. Wow. That, fascinating. Thank you, Mark, so much for My taking pleasure. the time to be with us. Oh, yeah. And look forward to talking with you again. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash American Idea Pod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AM Idea Podcast. From the Schramm Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickenga.